Hi, welcome to the World Stone. This is episode 7. It's in the Bible, at least inspired by scripture. Today we look at sayings that are popularized in our everyday language that actually came from the Bible, or at least were inspired by it. So please sit back and enjoy. Hi, and welcome to the Rolled Stone. Today's episode, episode 7, is titled, It's in the Bible, or at least inspired by Scripture. So if you've been listening, then you probably heard the last episode, episode 6, which was titled, It's in the Bible, isn't it? If not, go back and check that one out, because in this episode, we're going to cover some of the common sayings that have been either directly quoted from Scripture or been inspired by them. So as we go through these, I really encourage you to go look them up for yourself and read those passages. You know, read the one before, read the one after, really get a good context of what's going on. What I'm going to focus on, though, is just the actual words of the passage that were inspired by the Scripture or actually were said verbatim from the Scripture. So there's quite a list here. Sit back and enjoy. So first one we're going to come to is twinkling of an eye. And this comes out of 1 Corinthians 15.52. And the New American Standard Bible says that in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. So when we hear this, and we're reading this passage, we're probably thinking, okay, I have no idea really what that means. But in everyday language, when somebody says twinkling of an eye, it means that something's going to happen very, very quickly. So if I'm walking down the street, I'm saying, you know, hey, you know, I had this situation happen, it happened within a twinkling of an eye, that tells the person I'm talking to that whatever happened happened very, very fast, and I didn't have a lot of time to react to it. Now, if we look at the whole context of the scripture, though, that we just read, and not just what the saying is, twinkling of an eye, what we're getting out of this is that Paul is saying that when the last trumpet is sounded, and this is something that usually accompanies the appearance of God in both the Old and New Testament as the sound of a trumpet, that something is going to happen. And with that something, there's usually some sort of a consequence. So here, what Paul is saying is that within a twinkling of an eye, within a very short amount of time, imperceivable to humankind, and after that last trumpet has been sounded, this consequence will occur. And in this case, that consequence is good. That consequence is that the dead shall raise with new bodies and will be changed and will be with God and never separated from him again. So to me, that sounds pretty good. Number two, the writing is on the wall. Now this comes from Daniel 5. This is where Belshazzar had the Jews captive in Babylon and he's having a feast and orders the golden vessels that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of their temple to be brought to his party so that he and his guests could drink out of them. So while they're having the party, these human fingers appear out of nowhere opposite a lampstand and start writing on the plaster. And the king has a very physical reaction to this. I mean, I think if I saw a disembodied hand come out of nowhere and just start writing messages on my wall, I think I'd be very alarmed as well. And that's what happens with him is he has very alarming thoughts. And the description says that he is, his hip joints loosened and he lost the ability to stand and his knees start knocking together. So we're talking about fear. He had absolute fear of what he was seeing. So what he does is he calls for his sorcerers and his diviners, and they can't figure this out. They have no idea what's going on. So then he hears about Daniel with this ability to interpret dreams and difficult riddles. And he asks, you know, bring him up here and have him look at this and see if he can interpret what's going on. So Daniel comes up and he reads the words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Efsharan, and interprets them for the king. And he says, Mene, God has outnumbered, has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed and found wanting. Afsharan, your kingdom is divided and given to the Midis and the Persians. 
That very night, Belshazzar was killed. So in this case, something bad is going to happen, and it's going to happen very, very soon. Now, when we use this in our conversations today, it's usually trying to get somebody to understand that, you know, the writing is on the wall of what's going to happen here. Like, what's going to, what's going to occur here is going to be bad, and we can see it coming, and you need to stop. And that's usually how it's used in today's language. You know, it's just trying to get somebody to point out the obvious of what's going to happen if you continue this action. So that's how we use it today in our conversations. But a little bit different from what they used it from. Number three, there is nothing new under the sun. This one comes from Ecclesiastes 1.9. I'm going to read the verse here for you. It says, what has been, it is what will be. And what has been done, it is what will be done. So, there is nothing new under the sun. And this is basically an explanation of life on Earth. Given our daily routines, our advances in technology, all of our understanding of new concepts, that life will go on and it will operate the same on Earth as it always has. The sun, wind, and water will always function as they always have, and nothing new. So there is some frustration in this, though. And that is, beside all of our advances, our human nature remains the same. We make the same mistakes, we hold on to the same prejudices, We make the same choices as our ancestors. We never learn from our history and try to change our course. We look at the current events happening right now. I mean, how many times have these problems come up? And how many times have the same arguments circulated without any real change or action? But there is more to this verse than than this context. So when we're talking about there's nothing new under the sun, that means that whatever's happening has happened before. It's occurred over and over and over again. And this is not a new idea. This is not a new situation. This is not a new development. It's the same thing. Number four, for everything, there is a season or a time for everything. Ecclesiastes 3. So we're going to just uh, read the verse here. It says, it starts with, uh, there is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every matter under heaven. Now, when I hear this, I immediately think of that song from the birds, turn, turn, turn. And they are literally saying what this says. It says that there is a time for everything under heaven. There's a time to give birth and die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather those stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Number five, eat, drink, be merry. Ecclesiastes 8.15. So I commend pleasure, for there is nothing good for a person under the sun except to eat, drink, and be joyful, and this will stand by him in his labor throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. What they're basically saying here is this is not just resigning yourself to your fate kind of saying. It's not just like, well, you know, we got to do this because, you know, life's terrible. But what they're saying is that we should take joy in the ordinary activities of life. We should share our fellowship with the people of God, share a message with those who are not. And while we are involved in these activities, God is nourishing our souls and preparing us. He's calling on us to rejoice. So this is a time for celebration. It's not just to be like, well, you know, I guess we better eat, drink, and be merry because everything's terrible. No, no, no. God wants you to enjoy the small activities of life and to share the abundance of our lives with those around us. Number six, fly in the ointment. Ecclesiastes 10.1. Verse says that dead flies turn a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. 
So this is referring to a very small action that can have drastic consequences. Something as small as a fly, an insect that we don't really think much of, can spoil an entire container of ointment that may be cheap, may be very expensive. You know, it's a direct comparison to someone acting foolish. When you act foolish, people remember that act more clearly than any other act you may have committed. You could have had made a fool of yourself out of the town one night, and people will focus on that instead of your work that helps the community, work that helps benefit others, or any other thing you have accomplished. A fly in the ointment means that the plans, the work done, has been made foul and needs to be addressed and changed. Number seven, fall from grace. This is Galatians 5.4. Fall from grace. I'm sure you've heard this used in some manner, usually referring to someone who has lost everything after being on top of it all. It seems like a legit uh, definition. But biblically, it is a little bit more complicated than that. This verse is part of the argument of law versus grace. How does one become saved? Does following the law and being circumcised give redemption? Or is God's grace enough? There's a lot to unpack with this, so I'm going to try to keep this as short as possible. It does not mean that someone loses God's grace. What this means is that you are off the path of grace if you choose justification of the law over justification of grace. Seeking justification through a set of rules or law means you cannot be justified by grace, hence the term. You don't lose God's grace, you just need to realign yourself with it. For grace has law entitled into it, but the law has no grace. And this is a little different than the way we use it, because like we said, you know, it's usually somebody that you know falls from some sort of status. But biblically, it just means that you need to realign yourself with God's will. Number eight, let there be light. I know people use this when they walk in a room, they flip that switch and they say, let there be light when they turn on the lights. You know, they're trying to be funny and it's cute. Uh, but I think this one's a little obvious. I mean, God said, let there be light and there was literally light created. Number nine. Forbidden fruit. Genesis 3.3. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. A fruit that was forbidden by God for our consumption or even to touch. So this is used in modern times to denote things that we should not touch or take. We use this as a warning of items or even people that may do us harm. And it's also used for things that are just kind of outside of our grasp. But let's look at the scripture on this since we're here. And it says that if you touch or eat of this fruit, you will die. So first, let's get the picture of the apple out of your head, because I know that's what you're thinking. Nowhere does it say it's an apple. Second word, die. All right, so we're going into Strong's Concordance here. And this is entry 4191. And in Hebrew, it states that the use of this term, in this case, is not a physical death, but a moral death. A death caused by a conscious decision to rebel against God, and in essence, not have belief in God's word. So think about this. They are told by the Creator, do not eat this. Bad things will happen. Well, then they go and they listen to the serpent who convinces them to eat it. So this act is much deeper than a physical rebellion. It is a rebellion of belief, of something over the word of God. So you're actually saying to yourself, no, No, God is not right here. I am, and I'm going to put my trust in this other being because I want to do what this other being is telling me and not listen to God. And here we are, generations later, we're doing the same thing. So when people talk about the forbidden fruit, they're using it in a modern-day context. They're talking about things that are outside the grass, things that may do them harm, stuff they should just leave alone. Biblically, 
it was literally the forbidden fruit that we should not have eaten from because it would cause a moral death because it was a direct violation of God's law. Number 10, a drop in the bucket. Isaiah 40, 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. In our modern understanding, this means an insignificant amount. A drop in the bucket does not change the weight of the bucket enough for the bearer to feel it. A speck of dust would not change the scales and cause them to move. It's just, it's literally nothing. It doesn't matter. Now, in regards to God, this means that the nations are insignificant compared to him. That they are like a speck of dust compared to his greatness. Isaiah tells us that God can lift the islands like fine dust. These would be the coastlines, and the islands are not normally seen. Things that we see as heavy and weighty, you know, land is, you know, can be several miles across. It can be you know, hundreds of miles across, thousands of miles across, but God can pick them up like they are nothing. And overall, Isaiah is saying that God is so magnificent that all the things we worry about, all the burdens, the very land we walk on, and the earth we depend on for our physical survival are insignificant to God's overall glory. Number 11. Can a leopard change his spots? Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you as well can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Simply put, some people can't change. And that is what is being explained here. Jeremiah is explaining that people who are accustomed to doing evil are more than likely going to do evil. They will not be able to change themselves any more than a leopard. Number 12. Nothing but skin and bones and the skin of my teeth. This comes from Job 19, 19, 20. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. For us to use this in modern days, um, it means a couple of things. You know, let's break down. The first thing we're going to talk about is the skin and bones. So obviously this is the physical appearance of a person having their skin taut against their bones especially after a sickness, or we use it to speak of someone who's expect, you know, especially thin or wiry. You know, like, oh, that person's all skin and bones. They need to eat a cheeseburger or whatever. And then the skin of the teeth means getting out of a difficult situation, but barely getting out of that situation. Scripturally, this means pretty much the same thing. Job is talking about his afflictions and trials that he is enduring. He refers to the fact that he is emaciated physically. Job makes the comment that he has escaped these afflictions by the skin of his teeth only. And the only reason why he's able to do this was that he never lost his faith in God. Number 13, cast the first stone, John 8, 7. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So this basically means that we're quick to blame, criticize or punish. We have also heard this phrase used as, you know, those in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. You know, a phrase like that, it simply means that you're just as bad as the person you're criticizing. So you need to be careful before you say something because you may have done the exact same thing that you're complaining that they're doing. In scripture, Jesus is saying the same thing. He is pointing out that anyone who is without sin cast that first stone. Anyone who is perfect and has never done anything wrong in their life, go ahead and throw it. Of course, no one does, because they all know they are not without sin. I think this is a lesson that we need to remind ourselves of. Especially today, with our current social issues, we need to be reminded that we are here to help, 
not throw stones at others, and ignore our own sin in the process. Number 14. Scapegoat. Leviticus 16, 9-10. And I'm pretty sure that somewhere along the line someone's heard this phrase. And this is usually used to refer to someone that is being blamed or accepts the blame on behalf of others and their mistakes. So if somebody's a scapegoat, that means that either they have been set up to take the blame or they have accepted the blame and said, you know, I will take the fall for this and I will, you know, take the punishment for whatever has happened. And biblically, this is very similar. And let's go to, uh, to the scripture here. We're going to start at Leviticus 9, uh, 16, 9. It says, Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So in this case, it is literally a goat. And what they would do is they would lay hands on it. They would put both hands on it. And Aaron or the high priest would then transfer the sins of the people and the nation upon this goat. And they would send it out into the wilderness and send those sins back to where they came from. Okay. And that's what this actually means. So when somebody's talking about a scapegoat, no, they're talking either about somebody's going to take blame, but in, in biblical terms, it was literally a goat that would carry the sins of the nation away from the people and out of the wilderness and back to where they came from. Number 15, Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 30-37. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers, and they stripped him and they beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by coincidence, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed compassion to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. This is all about being a good person. This is all about helping people, doing what is right. So if somebody's being a good Samaritan, that means they have done something good. They have done something right. Number 16, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Matthew 5, 38, 42. So you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other toward him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. When we hear this today, we think of action for action. You take my eye. I take yours. You take my tooth, I'm going to take yours. It is a revenge justification for something you have done to me. Biblically, though, it's very different. So listen to what's being said here. Jesus is saying that a personal retaliation is not justified. This is to keep people from utilizing this law that is actually found in Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy as a means for personal retaliation. These situations in the law were there to help guide the magistrates. But if someone slaps your cheek, that is not the same as murder. 
and therefore you need to show grace. And let's face it, some people take scripture and they use it to justify their actions. And what Christ is saying, that in this case, you can't take those old laws and use them to justify your cruelty. You need to show grace. Number 17, go the extra mile. Matthew 5, 41. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So we think of this as going above and beyond. You know, somebody asks you to do something and you go further than what they asked, you know, it's, it's going the extra mile. You know, someone asks you to paint the garage and they end up painting the whole house. You would say, wow, man, they went the extra mile and went beyond what I asked or expected. And this is the same concept, except for in Christ's time, anyone could be forced by the government officials into service, specifically sending messages back and forth by heralds. In this case, Christ is telling them to go peacefully and to go twice the distance that was required. Don't resist the command, just do it, but do it better than expected. And that's what that means. Number 18, straight and narrow, Matthew 7, 14. We hear this, we think, keeping your nose out of trouble, making sure you're doing everything you can to stay out of jail or cause problems. Well, with the scripture, it means actually something else. And that is, and this is from uh, Matthew 7, 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. This is telling us that the way to internal life is narrow and constricted. It is not some super highway. It is a very fine path, one that must be walked straight as a path is narrow. Any deviation and you will miss it. Most people are not even aware of this. They move on with their lives and do not understand the greatness of what they have been given. Therefore, will go the easy road that benefits them. And they flat out ignore or just completely miss the narrow gate thinking and acting on their own desires and not aligning them with those of God's. Number 19, wolf in sheep's clothing, Matthew 7, 15. This one should be pretty obvious. Beware of those you come into contact with because they may have intent to harm you. Okay, they may say that you're your friend or they're here to help, but then they'll eventually turn on you or try to get something out of you. Biblically, it means the same thing, but this is actually referencing those who come in Christ's name. So Matthew 7, 15 says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In this case, people use God's name to get what they want and will manipulate people around them using this idea. And for more insight on this, check out my episode five, False Prophets. I talk a lot about this one. Number 20, Sign of the Times, Matthew 16, 3. This has been used to express something judged to indicate the nature of a particular period of time that is usually not welcome. So if you look at our nation and something happens to a group of people that are not happy about it, they usually use this to indicate their displeasure, normally indicating some concept of morality. But if we're looking at the verse, and it starts at Matthew 16, 3, it says, And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you are unable to discern the signs of the times. So biblically, this is actually in reference to Christ. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were against one another on principles of conduct, but both groups were against Christ. They didn't accept the signs of Christ, but arrogantly wanted their own sign that would satisfy their own curiosities. Both groups wanted their own sign. In this case, they are being rebuked for not accepting the signs from God. What he's saying is that they can look at the sky and determine the weather by the color, and if there will be a storm, but they refuse to accept these obvious signs that Christ is doing out of an area of hubris that they require their own. 
And that's what this means biblically is that God is giving you signs, but you refuse to see them because they don't line up with what you particularly want. Number 21, blind leading the blind. Matthew 15, 13, 14. This refers to leaders that think they know what they're talking about, uh, leading others who more than likely think like they do, but have no idea what's actually going on. And in this case, it's the same thing Matthew is talking about. So starting in Matthew 15, 13 through 14, he says, But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides of blind people. And if a person who is blind guides another who is blind, both will fall into a pit. So what Christ is talking about is the teachings of the Pharisees of tradition over the spiritual aspect of God's teachings. He tells them this by saying in verse 7 through 9, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what he's getting at is that they are blind to the teachings of God. They're not doing what God is actually wanting them to do. And they are blindly and proudly teaching others who think they are right. And therefore they're teaching the next group wrong. And they're blinding them to the truth. And this is where we get the blind leading the blind. Number 22, money is the root of all evil. as comes from 1 Timothy 6.10. And I know we've heard this one. And it seems that a lot of problems always fall, fall around money. There's always some issues with money. Um, there's always a need to want more, uh, to have what others have. Money drives a lot of people. And in some cases, money is their only motivation to do anything. And they want to make all the money. Okay, but the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are they happy? Do they feel fulfilled? Now, money within itself is not the root of all evil. This saying is misquoted from 1 Timothy 6.10. And what he says there is that the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is just a tool. But the love of it, that's where you start having problems. When you focus on nothing but money, doing whatever you can to get it, not caring who you hurt, not caring how it affects anybody around you or how much damage it causes, that is the problem. And I understand that this is a necessary tool in our society, you know, but you don't have to put your love in money before God, before your spouse, before your children. That is not okay. All right, so work, make your money, spend as you wish, invest it, shove it on a mattress, whatever you want to do with it. But in the end, do not love it. For it does not love you back. And if you do that, then you would just replace the love of God with the love of money and actually turn that money into an idol, which we all know is not acceptable to God. I'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast of The Rolled Stone. Once again, if you have any questions, please submit them to theroldstone at outlook.com. I look forward to hearing from you and hope that you continue this journey with God and Jesus along beside us. Have a wonderful day.